Hey y'all! Welcome to Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. I'm Abby Artemisia of The Wander School. Each episode, I bring you stories, tips, and tricks from foragers and wildcrafters around the world to empower you on your wild path. Please remember to practice safe foraging by being 100% positive of your identification before consuming anything wild. Happy listening! Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine we need grows all around us. Welcome to episode five of Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. I'm Abby Artemisia of the Wander School. And I'm just going to jump right in today because there is so much to talk about. I'm here with my good friend, Mark Williams, who is an ethnobiologist. Hi, Mark. Hi, Abby. Happy to be here. <laughs> oh, thanks so much for being here. Mark and I have known each other probably close to six years now. And he was one of the very first people I met before I even moved to North Carolina and was so helpful in introducing me to the area and told me about the company that we both ended up working for, No Taste Like Home, run by Alan Muscat. And we were both teachers there, and now we each do pretty much a million different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true, with a lot of overlap still. Definitely. And um, Mark and I run into each other at conferences all over North Carolina, ran into each other at Florida Earthskills this spring, and we'll hopefully be running into each other in Ohio next month. So we'll talk about that and give all y'all you know, the details about what exciting events are coming up. But right now, I just want to ask you, Mark, to tell us about what is an ethnobiologist. Right, yeah. So when people ask what I do, there's, of course, different levels of complexity depending on how much time you have. But if there was just one word, it would be ethnobiologist. Of course, though, that's a kind of obscure term. And it's really a compound term built off of two other terms. So ethnology is one of the sciences of the study of human culture, like ethnic groups. And then biology, of course, is the study of all life. And so there are subsets within biology that also combine with ethnology. And so you could have an ethnobotanist that studies, for instance, the connection between people and plants specifically and how people have depended on plants for food or medicine or for their built materials and um, crafts and beauty. Or you could have an ethnomycologist who studies how people have uh, interfaced with fungi over the years for various different purposes. And I study both of those disciplines, but I'm also an avid forager uh, and fermenter of the things that I forage. And so fermentation, of course, is bringing in this kingdom of the microbes. So that's kind of like ethnomicrobiology, um, depending and there are some fungal microbes, and then there are, of course, other kinds, like bacterial ones. And, uh, yeah, more and more I'm getting into insects and their beauty and birds. And so each one of those is its own science, but they're all put together into the science of biology. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. I really like it, the way that you described what you do and what you study in your bio, which um, is in the blog that is linked to this podcast. And it says, he has studied the people, plant, mushroom, microbe connection intensively while learning to employ botanicals and other life forms for food, medicine, and beauty. That's so well written. <laughs> well, practice makes better, I always say. That's right. I've been doing that bio for about 15 years. So, <laughs> you know, massaging it into place. 
That's awesome. And you have had a lot of academic study for sure. So I don't know, do you feel like talking about any of that or maybe what was most valuable from that academic study? Yeah, sure. Um, sure. The long event, I, uh, gone to six different, um, establishments of higher education. I went to four different colleges and universities in Florida. And then I moved up here to Western North Carolina about 20 years ago. And I transferred to Warren Wilson college here near Asheville as a junior with my, um, associate degree from Santa Fe Community College down in Florida and really kind of I would say that's where my in earnest career started in like 2002 and uh, did sustainable agriculture with a minor in business there and took most of the plant classes and really fell in love with the botany in particular first and foremost and um, yeah went on to employ that in different ways and had my own business doing uh, food at farmers markets and catering and a restaurant and food at festivals and all sorts of things and went on to do landscaping after that and managed the garden at Warren Wilson College but then uh, at a certain point I was like yeah I want to go back to school I love learning and I went to graduate school at Appalachian State University in Boone and uh, really focused on um, Appalachian studies and sustainable development as a subset of that and uh, planning and geography as a minor. And so basically I studied the plants of the Appalachian region for thousands of hours <laughs> and then <laughs> tried to frame our connection with them in a way that would look sustainable for future generations. That's great. And it's interesting to me too, because we both have an academic background in botany and we both have a lot of life learning in botany also and foraging. Yeah, it would be cool for me to talk more about this later for myself and what I found the difference was. But I'm interested for you to hear a little bit of like what the difference was in the learning, like what you feel like maybe was the most valuable part of each or what you did or didn't get from one or the other. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question because uh, people might notice when I was talking about my academic process, I only mentioned the last two institutions, I didn't really say straight botany, you know, I said um, sustainable agriculture and business and then Appalachian State sustainable development and geography and planning, <laughs> so um, it was really kind of a roundabout way and especially in my graduate program. It was people studying a lot of different things related to Appalachian culture and not as much about the environmental sciences as the social sciences. And so I would say that really, um, you know, my academic training was more about the process of learning and framing questions and doing research and writing that up and the rigor of PhDs, you know, pushing you through the process and um, curating that and your peers and colleagues as well. And then Warren Wilson is a work college. So I was actually working in the garden and working in the food system and helping design a edible landscape for the first uh, lead platinum certified dorm in the whole entire country yeah. while I was there. So those kinds of things are so above and beyond anything you could ever do outside of an institution, I think. Right. Whereas my actual learning of botany has been a lot of self-study. I've got hundreds of books, and um, I've been to all 50 states and 30 countries and over 200 botanical gardens. And so a lot of it has been just out there in the field, hitting the books, looking at the plant signs. And, um, and then learning, I would say, also, though, with other colleagues that are in the field. And I would definitely give credit to Seven Song. Uh, from the Northeast School of Botanical Medicine is one of my great teachers because we've been all over the country botanizing together at the Rainbow Gatherings. And um, certainly my first big teacher and mentor and inspiration, Frank Cook, who's actually a student of Seven Songs historically. But um, yeah, I would say more of my botany has been, you know, if I had to rank it in um, proportion, like self-study, 
And then some really core teachers like Seven Song, Frank Cook, and I definitely mentioned Juliet Blankespor and Michael Stevens for down in Florida and Daniel Nicholson for out west in California and various folks like that, certainly a host of amazing people uh, internationally as well because I do a lot of work for uh, the nonprofit I work for internationally. Um, yeah, so just kind of like a combo of, of those kinds of things. But then academic pursuits, not as much directly with the botany, but more with the kind of way of learning, like I said. Gotcha. Yeah, so a really well-rounded education. Yeah, I will do one other shout-out, though, too, for um, this whole other piece of that educational process, which... Um, definitely interfaces with academia and bridges into other realms, which are you know, conferences, mm-hmm. that type of thing, from the Society of Economic Botany, which is an international conference of incredible botanists from all over the world. Definitely learned a lot from in the Society of Ethnobiology, which really takes in other organisms as well. And then, of course, all the different herbal conferences we go to, for sure, have just learned a ton on the ground with folks like yourself and and lots of other really good teachers. Cool. Well, I want to get into foraging because that's what this is all about. And then we can talk some more about the rest of it in mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I'm really curious how you got started foraging and what got you interested. All right. Well, you know, I feel really grateful that it's fairly crystal clear, like, how to answer that question because uh, I was living in Florida still at the time and I got this insight that I needed to understand where the food that I was cooking at this restaurant came from, where the food in my life in general Mm -hmm. was coming from. And um, that was actually an insight I got out of a Pashna meditation, just represent, represent. So this is like 1998. And uh, I started working at this place called Phoenix Rising Farm outside of Gainesville, Florida that supplied this uh, restaurant I worked at called Our Place Cafe. And in the process of working at that farm, uh, my colleagues, and in particular a lady named Laura, started pointing out some different plants that were growing on the farm in the margins, you know, around the areas where we were cultivating, and telling me some of their stories and how they might be employed for food that we could add to the salad if we wanted to, and um, used to also... Um, you know, go after, you know, uh, a bee sting or something to make that kind of uh, soften. Those kinds of uh, general plants that a lot of people will be familiar with, like plantain and dandelion and chickweed and, and these types of things. So that was about 1998, a little over 20 years ago. So why do you forage now? Has that changed at all for you or evolved? Hmm. Well, gosh, yeah, that's a complex question because I think of like why there's a lot of different reasons why and then mm-hmm. has it changed and um, I don't know. I'm sure it's the, a big way it's changed is that it's just gotten more complex. Like I feel like maybe when I started foraging, it was more, um, yeah, I... <laughs> I, I kind of think of it almost as, like, from the time I was a kid, I just always really resonated with these characters of kind of, like, science fiction and stuff like uh, Tolkien and um, Dungeons and & Dragons and, like, the elves and, and things like that. And I would actually um, play, like, role-playing games. I'd always want to be the elf. And, you know, I do think it was kind of initially it was just uh, more of a kind of, like, I can do that in real life, you know, sort of thing. And, um yeah, just kind of did it for the fun and the novelty of it. And I also became vegetarian right around that time. And um, at first I was not eating a very good diet in regards to that, more just like carbohydrates. And um, and so I was looking for more vegetable type things, uh, fresh vegetables to bring in. And so I think that definitely played a part that kind of like, you know, I always loved to cook since I was a little kid. And so I just started incorporating those things into my food. And then fairly shortly after that, I learned about this idea of food as medicine and 
how some of these wild things can be as nutritious or sometimes more nutritious than the cultivated things. And, um, yeah, I think another piece of it, probably if I were to think about how I'm just hardwired at a foundational level is just to love diversity, love new experiences, new flavors, new textures, colors, all of it. And, um, so yeah, it just kind of led me more and more to understand what all was available out there. And the more I understood what all was available out there, the more I kind of figured out ways to incorporate it and also figured out some of the issues that are involved with the idea of wild edibles. A lot of wild edibles are exotic invasive plants that have been introduced here. A lot of people find that to be a big problem. And so for me, that's kind of more of a more recent evolution as in the last decade or something about halfway of, um, how do we kind of turn this problem into a resource mm -hmm. basically, you know, kind of coming out of the science of permaculture. That's a big principle within permaculture is to look at things in a way that can, you know, basically switch up the framing and, uh, take something that we consider to be a challenge and issue and turn it into a, um, feedstock, you know, or some material for something positive. And so that really has been the more recent thing with, um, my foraging and, and educating people around foraging is trying to curb exact invasives mm -hmm. in a certain way. And then also, um, of course we have food supply issues and long-term we won't be able to ship food thousands of miles for people. We're going to need a more localized food diet. I firmly believe most likely not just, um, you know, for the fun and novelty of it, but for necessity purposes. And basically, you know, right at the end of that long bio that you're yep. reading from the top of is like, I've dedicated my life to trying to deal with this current ecological issue that we have of sustainability and survival of our species and foraging fits pretty much right into that core level right after air and water, we need food. Right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. And it's something that I feel like I teach more and more and focus on more and more in my education about foraging is, you know, I've talked to several people lately who don't even like using the term invasive because I think it has a negative connotation. But on the other hand, if we use that term invasive, it does give us an opportunity to forage some plants that may be preventing some other native plants from being more prevalent in our environment, which are also food for our native wildlife. And so we can actually somewhat help our habitat by doing that. So potentially, I mean, this is such a complicated subject yeah. that maybe you could have me back and we could just do a whole one on That'd invasives and foraging. Mm -hmm. I would just do a quick shout out for Living Lab Farms because I'm going to be teaching there at the end of the month and uh, do a whole class on challenges and opportunity with challenges and opportunities with invasive plants. Oh, nice. And um, that's going to be videoed too. So um, that'll be a real extended thing, but I bet we could probably pick apart some of the nuances, but the short, the long of it that I've been, uh, you know, in dialogue with colleagues and stuff about this for a decade is that one part of it is you could basically have this intention to control the invasives by making use of them. Right. But mm -hmm. in the process of that, say there was uh, reproductive material on that stuff you're harvesting, mm -hmm. you might spread it inadvertently. Right. So yeah. that's, Kind of, um, you're trying to do a good thing, but there's this inverting consequence. Another one is that some invasives have uh, native lookalikes. Mm -hmm. uh, barberry would be an example of that. Um, bittersweet would be an example of that. And so you might be removing the, you know, the native one that might not be as common. And you're thinking that you're moving the exotic invasive one and then you can kind of get to another extreme and there's actually some academic research in this realm and I definitely got to represent for Dr. Sunshine Brosey at Frostburg State University because she's brought a lot of this information to my awareness. And so um, 
you could get to a level where the invasives are so cherished in their environment culturally and socially mm -hmm. that people actually want to promote them and propagate them and say, you can't take these away from us because they're, they're so important. And, um, yeah, I was just reading an example in a book about the Biltmore nursery and they're talking about, you know, people wanted to do restoration or something and they wanted to do it to the letter of the exact, uh, planting, uh, of a historic planting. Well, historically people are planting a lot of these invasives now that are escaped on the countryside. And, um, so they recommend, well, don't, do that but then with this kind of like caveat that unless you absolutely have to for exact you know representational accuracy <laughs> for the period that you are right. trying to reproduce and it's like well, <laughs> i don't know i think well anyway you know, we all have our different priorities right so. right yes yeah but that brings up some some really good points I think, you know, it's, it's not as simple as we sometimes make it like, oh, we'll just harvest these invasives and it'll be great. <laughs> They'll be gone. It's, it's not that easy. Definitely. And I definitely think like we're past the point of no return, uh, you know, to some extent, like you can't, there's no way to rid the world of invasives at this point. So how do we learn to live with them and manage the environment but definitely topic for a longer conversation for sure yeah because there's a lot of exotic invasives in particular I, you know in the southeast about 300 plus and wow. you know some of them we probably could go after and they're not you know that great of an extent but mm -hmm. things that people are familiar with like you know kudzu although there is a beetle taking that down who knows but you know kudzu's widespread multiflora rose widespread mm -hmm. you know um Japanese honeysuckle, a lot of those have potential applications for people, but they also yeah. are across so much acreage that, like you said, kind of the cat's out of the bag. Yeah. And um, I'm really curious to hear your definition of ethical foraging, but I think in order to do that, we have to ask a different question first that I usually ask people which is interesting because um, I've talked about this a little bit and I interviewed our friend Becky Byer and she's talked about it. So it'd be really cool to hear your perspective on it about how would you describe this bioregion where we live? Because I think that has a lot, really fits into the ethical foraging piece because we do, as I'm sure you'll talk about, live in such a center of biodiversity here. Yeah, that's true. And, um, I think sometimes there's a lot of conflation that happens that really sort of lumps in this region where we're in. And, um, you know, there's even different pronunciations for it depending on how uh, far south or north you are, right? Down here we call it Appalachia, but up north they call it Appalachia. And um, depending on whether you're on the more eastern side or on the western side and um, in the valleys or up high in the mountains. Um, there's a lot of diversity, like you said, mountains bring diversity because there's all these different sort of eco-regions. And um, in general, it's one of the most diverse places in the world where it gets cold, especially for broadleaf deciduous trees. And um, yeah, it's got a rich history of foraging for sure of many hundreds of, of different types of plants. But um, Given the sub area that you're in, you could find like a whole different cast of characters that might be available. Um, that could vary depending on the soil types in general in our area. In Western North Carolina. You Western North about? Carolina, I'm talking about. Um, and, and then going more towards the east, it would be more of uh, acidic soils that are not very rich. But as you go further north or you go further west, then the soils get a lot richer, more basic, like an area that we both uh, have some love in common and, and a lot of time spent, although you much more than me, in, in Ohio, not very many hours from here, the soils are just totally different, and thereby mm -hmm. the plants are totally different. And um, so it's kind of fascinating that way that you could go 
an hour or two in any direction really and um, in the case of Asheville where we're close to right now it's one of the driest places in the state but you could go like hour and a half two hours um, away from there towards Highlands and Cashers and you're in one of the wettest places in the whole country you know <laughs> so um, a lot of that really informs the different sort of sub type groups of plant assemblages that happen in mm -hmm. in the Appalachian region. Yeah, and and I think that has a lot to do with ethical foraging too informs that ethical foraging because people will often ask me like how much is okay to harvest and the longer I forage the less I have a pat answer for that. Yeah, um, good. So I'm curious to hear what your opinion is on that. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. You know, when I first started, and I've certainly been on walks with some of my teachers, where there are these kind of, you know, pat sayings about, you know, you pick one out of every five plants or one out of every ten plants or something like that. But, um when you're talking about hundreds of different kinds of plants and then you're talking about all of these different, um, you know, ecotypes basically, then, then that can kind of fall apart. And there's some plants that are really threatened and, um, and even endangered maybe that there's been some good scientific study on what does an ethical wild crafting type of thing look like with ramps, um, ginseng, um, those types of things, but that's just a couple. And, um, you know, I guess where I would frame this for me first and foremost is that I focus almost all my foraging on exotic invasives or on natives that are super prolific and, and very common. And um, then would go into another tier of how I would interact with things that are less common and um, and take it kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. But I think something that's really important to point out, especially anybody listening locally from this area, Western North Carolina, because I do feel like this is a, a, a concern for sustainability as time goes on. We have hundreds of people that like to forage around here. And there are certain areas around here that are atypical for the region at large. And they will have a large amount of things like ramps or um, particularis would be another common one that lots of people uh, might want to forage for medicine. But those patches are fairly rare in the tapestry of the overall region. Right, so that's this idea of being locally abundant but regionally unusual or maybe even rare. And just to make that connection with people, because they might find a patch where it's like, oh man, there's thousands of these. Mm -hmm. But then you could walk for miles and not see another single one. Yep. So just kind of making that connection, I think, is really important. Definitely. Thanks. That was great. So, speaking of foraging you are giving us this awesome recipe for a wild hummus which I'm really excited about because I have never seen a wild hummus recipe so um, that will be on the blog with a link down in the show notes but do you want to talk about some of these plants that are in your recipe why you chose them and maybe how to harvest them or what kind of constituents they have yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. And I do want to say just, and I know we might get into this more, but just to make sure, because on the subject of ethics and everything, mm -hmm. United Plant Savers yes. comes up as an organization that's really dedicated their mission to really promoting the sustainability of especially medicinal plants that are often wild harvested. And I work a lot with them. They have an amazing sanctuary in Ohio. And uh, a big event coming up in celebration of uh, their organization in September. Um, so really thankful for, for that work with that. But moving on to the hummus, we've got, um, I think, really, um, to frame it in general, a genre 
right? More than an exact recipe.、Mm. And this is something I really picked up on from Frank Cook too, in relation to a number of different types of kind of like core core menu items. And so hummus basically is a kind of bean dip, right? Now there are some interesting ideas. I guess I'm just thinking about this real time, and gosh, this could be a once again a whole nother talk. But like. Obviously, hummus comes from the Mediterranean and the Middle East. So, if you were to ask somebody in Lebanon or in Israel or you know Jordan or whatever, what is hummus? They would have a very definitive idea around that, and、um, and who says the best hummus and exactly what needs to happen <laughs> to it. But certainly, even if you were to go within and around that region, you would see grandmother to grandmother, grandfather to grandfather, country to country, some variation. And、um, yeah, and everybody knows what hummus is, but、um, I'm just kind of sensitive to this idea. I'll just say the word of like that's so up in society right now: cultural appropriation, right?、Mm-hmm. You know, and、um, what rights do we have to these terms and how we mess with the the formulation of what they represent.、Um, And like I said, that's just real time. I never thought about that in relation to hummus until just this moment. But anyway,、um, how I see it, and maybe I'll change the name to Wild Bean Dip, and then we'll just be in the clear.、Um, but you know, the typical hummus would have garbanzo beans, chickpeas,、mm-hmm. and that's definitely often what the hummus I make has as at least a base. But people might be familiar with black beans as a kind of very common variant. And so I've thought about you know varying it much wider than that, and we even have a commercial company now, Roots Hummus,、mm-hmm. in Asheville that has lima bean ones and、um, various others. And so that's the first level of diversity. And for me, the key is diversity. It's tailoring it to fit your personal taste and what happens to be in your kitchen. And、um, so with the beans, it's just beans. It doesn't really matter to me what beans, but I do know I use. Garbanzo beans, and、um, people often now are familiar with hummus. But just to kind of walk through what the classic one would entail, there's going to be some kind of oil, and、um, traditionally that would be some really nice, high-quality olive oil. But I would use any oil, and especially、um, back in the day when I've been really trying to economize, I might use like a sunflower oil or something. But olive oil definitely tastes better. And then there is tahini, which is another form of fat, and that's something that I pretty much always use, and is traditional. And then you get into where it can kind of vary. Well, I guess I would say garlic too would be kind of traditional, but already there I would start varying if I'm talking about a wild edible hummus or bean dip, shall we say? <laughs> so there are wild onions, right?、Mm-hmm. Allium vinealli is a very common one. People would be familiar with from their lawns that they run over with their lawnmower, and everything smells <laughs> like onions. They look like chives. So I use that for a big part of the year for all of my onion、yeah. applications,、uh, especially in the early part of the spring. And、uh, as far as other wild edibles, a traditional thing with hummus is to have lemon juice, some kind of sour component. I've often offset that either some or in total by adding a sour wild green. So、uh, there's this term a lot of people be familiar with, sorrel, which actually applies to a number of different plants. But the main ones that I would use is、uh, some kind of wood sorrel,、um, scientific name oxalis, a lot of different species, or、uh, what's often called sheep sorrel from、uh, mm-hmm. the Rumex genus, Rumex acetosella. So、um, that can be a, a little wild component with the、um, the acidity component.、Uh, of course, then you have this idea around oxalic acid, named after oxalis, the wood sorrel, and、um, there's a whole dialogue that could, could be had about that. But I would suffice it to say, most people say to you know moderate your consumption of that,、um, short of the long event. And then,、um, of course,、uh, another thing that you're going to have in hummus, like a lot of different dishes, is some kind of culinary herb type of addition. And a classic one for hummus would be parsley. So I, as a botanist and person, especially focuses on how plants are connected familially、uh, on a family basis. There is、uh, this great 
wild edible plant that we have everywhere, Queen Anne's lace, mm -hmm. that is um, really the same species as carrot, but uh, has a familiar flavor that people might recognize the parsley if you were to use the greens, even though a lot of people don't even know about using carrot greens, let alone the wild relative known as uh, Queen Anne's lace or wild carrot. But then there's a real um, big... Uh, you know, qualifier with that one that you just have to say almost in the same breath, right? That Queen Anne's lace is related to these super poisonous, maybe even deadly plants known as hemlocks. And, um, and I gather people have been poisoned and even died and confusing edible members of that family with, or everything's edible once. I'm trying to change that. But what I'm saying is, right? <laughs> like, help like um safe members of that family to consume with the poisonous ones right mm -hmm. that's really important and of course with anything related to foraging you just have to know first and foremost that you have what you think you have and when in doubt leave it out is a really mm -hmm. good way to especially start off and um and really kind of probably just hold on to um for the long haul actually when i think about it <laughs> yeah that's that's a super good point. <laughs> yeah, so to reiterate, if you don't have 100% positive ID on that one, leave it out would be, I think, a good recommendation. Yeah, I mean, the care family in general, I mean, that's what's so important about families, right, is that there are some families that you can kind of be a lot more open and loose about, like the Mint family, if you know mm -hmm. something's in there. But um, yes, this carrot family has a number of really choice edibles, both cultivated and wild, mm -hmm. and some really poisonous wild plants. And yeah. so it won't, it's one that really takes a, a, a next level of due diligence. And I would just um, do a quick shout out to, uh, lastly, that um, there would be some spices often that you would include into that uh, type of traditional hummus, uh, paprika, cumin, being a couple. But um, I've really brought that out, too. I really like to add turmeric. It's one of my favorite all-time mm, plants in the whole nice. entire world. And also, just a pro tip for folks, and I would love to literally see more pros doing this in the, in the realm of uh, commercial hummuseries, if you will, is to add a little miso. Um, mm. both because you have this umami flavor that you get from a fermented product, but then you also have this probiotic effect yeah. that you get to from it being a fermented product. And so that really, I think will take your hummus at the next potluck or in the marketplace <laughs> in your local natural food store to a whole nother level. Definitely. I'm curious, have you ever tried um, putting some sumac on the top of it? Right. I thought about sumac. I thought about paprika, you know, red powder, yeah. right? So certainly a sumac, you know, and, and that's a really neat overlap between the Middle East Mediterranean mm -hmm. and Appalachia is that they have a sumac that they use to flavor in the Middle East and the Mediterranean. And yeah, some folks locally have taken to using our local sumac in a similar way. And yeah. I would say I'm one of those, although not you know, a whole bunch, just okay. kind of for more special occasions. Yeah. And we are, to clarify, talking about the red berries of the sumac. The white berries are poisonous, poison sumac. That's true. Same family as poison ivy, Lots of which them. also has white berries. So red berries are good. White berries, not so much. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Especially when you're, like, recording something and just kind of putting it out there for the world at large, how many qualifiers yes. you kind of need. And um, the poison sumac and the sumacs that people use for food are very distinctive, like you said, and what the fruit looks like, the color of the fruit. But a number of other ways, too, and mm -hmm. what the foliage looks like, um, the ecotype where they grow. And any time you have something that is really potentially damaging then knowing, you know, two, three different ways to make sure that you're sure that you have what you have and not what might hurt you yep. is really going to be important and helpful. For sure. And as our friend Alan Muscat says, a field guide has two legs. Mm -hmm. So the best way to learn this stuff is to take a walk with somebody like Mark or myself or No Taste Like Home or anyone else who you know has 
good knowledge. Well, I do a shout out there for because um, I can imagine this going to a lot of different places. There's a forager in Florida, Green Dean, mm-hmm. and he has a list of foraging instructors for the whole country. Yeah, on his website, so you can find somebody potentially local to you. But yeah, I mean, I'm big fan of books, like I mentioned earlier. Big fan of YouTube mm-hmm. and you know basically all of the resources at hand. But I think one of the biggest issues, especially for a novice that is not humble enough, is that you kind of don't know what you don't know. And that no resource is ever fully complete. And so you might be missing something and then you kind of want to force, you know, a a round peg into the square hole because the round hole is not there in the book, you know, Mm -hmm. or like featured on the website. Or something, and oftentimes when you're with an experienced person, they know those things, and right. will, or you can at least have a back and forth for your own personal issues around recognizing those things. You know, because the classic question is, are there any lookalikes to this plant? And a classic answer for a really knowledgeable person is like, not for me, but <laughs> exactly. for a novice, yeah, there could be a whole bunch. Yeah. And who am I to say which ones <laughs> might be the lookalike for you? you yeah, know? I always say that's the hardest question I get asked. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Could be, right? Yeah. There always could be. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thanks so much for that recipe. I'm super psyched to try it. Mm -hmm. And again, that will be on the blog. So check that link in the show notes. And um, real quick, I am curious, do you have any tips for beginning foragers or just folks who are just starting to get into wild plant identification? Yeah, I mean, of course, being an educator, lots of tips. I'll try to consolidate Mm -hmm. and just say... Be humble, first and mm-hmm. foremost, you know, and go slow. And better to know a few plants well than a lot of plants kind of in a partial manner because there's a lot out there. But to just kind of incrementally build up your catalog and kind of figure out what's the most common and the most tasty, you know, mm-hmm. basically those kind of A-level things around and and really work with those for a while and kind of even figure out how you like to employ these types of things to begin with. But uh, like you said, experienced people, you just can't really, um, you know, get beyond that. But then there are some some pretty good books like the Pearson's Field Guide to Wild Edible Plants and um, Francois Couplon's book to uh, the Encyclopedia of Edible Plants of North America. And... Um, yeah, then there's people just like these incredible personalities like any field out there. Like I think of, um, not exactly sure how to pronounce his name, but Pascal Badar, uh-huh. or B-A-U-D-A-R out in California. I mean, gosh, following <laughs> his social media presence is enough to light up anyone for life about <laughs> how incredible this, you know, way of being can can be and look and, and taste and feel mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, kind of uh, joining clubs, you know, uh, we've talked mostly about plants, but there are a lot of also mushroom clubs in various different areas around the country that can be really great way to be with a bunch of knowledgeable people and collect things and um, really get down the identification appropriately. And I mentioned my path around botanical gardens. I think that's a fabulous way mm-hmm. to learn the plants because they're all labeled. Yeah. You know, they're in the flesh, and so that's also really nice. And, um, yeah, some other uh, great foragers online, too. Um, Adam Harriton, um, Learn Your Land, comes to mind, just like off the chain with YouTube-type stuff. So, you know, like anything in this day and age, it can be a multimedia endeavor, but certainly there's no doubt that there's no substitute for just being out there in the flesh using all your senses, your sense of touch and your sense of um, smell, your obviously sense of taste where appropriate and um, really kind of connecting the dots in all those different ways. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. I'll put links to those resources too for folks to find them. Yeah. So, um, I want to make sure before we're done to talk a little bit more about what you're involved with, because 
you're involved with some pretty amazing projects and organizations. And I think number one would be Plants and Healers, and number two would be Botany Every Day. So do you want to talk a little bit about those? Sure, I'd love to. And um, those things are kind of pretty much uh, intrinsically tied together, too. The Plants and Healers International nonprofit that I work for and help direct basically is something inspired by Frank Cook, who passed away 10 years ago on Monday, August 19th. And in his passing, he had traveled all over the world and stayed with all sorts of different plant people and healers and taught thousands of people about what he had learned. And uh, a number of his friends and family came together to start this nonprofit to continue his work. And so we've done that in a number of ways. First, kind of from an archival basis of trying to make sure that his different writings and recordings are available to people that are interested. And then also uh, then to carry forward his vision in various different ways of connecting plant people, healers in particular, all around the world. And um, we've led trips to various different places internationally, and we're working on some various publications based off of that field work. And um, yeah, we've got recipes, we've got suggested reading lists, we've got links to various different events and, and all sorts of other resources on our website. And then Botany Every Day is a real specific thing of Frank's lineage that was born out of um, basically specifically wanting to continue an online class that he had done for nine years. And uh, really speaks to the evolution of technology because when Frank did it, he did it by email. People might imagine uh, mm -hmm. something like that, but um, in his passing about 10 years ago, I brought it to a website format and um, basically have continued to administer it. So working on 10 years now with that, and it is a class that's still by available by donation in the tradition of Frank at BotanyEveryDay.com. And then that website has a whole bunch of other resources, especially suggested reading lists and... Um, some plant lists and uh, lots of things like that. And um, that also hosts uh, the various different events that I'm doing here locally in Western North Carolina and abroad for people that might want to find me somewhere down the road. You could uh, do that botany every day. And um, yeah, both of those, of course, have various other presences besides websites. So each one has a Facebook page that folks are welcome to join. And then um, with Instagram, we just have a Plants and Healers International Instagram is the main way folks could find me through that medium. Cool. Well, that answers that question. <laughs> Where can folks find you? Mm -hmm. So I will put links to all of that in the notes as well. And is there anything else you want to share about upcoming events or anything you're excited about? Anything we haven't talked about? Wow, gosh, yeah. So much. I'm sure, <laughs> I mean, so many potentials. But um, I guess just to once again, you know, keep it somewhat tight to think about our Ohio connections and um, very excited about this United Plant Savers Sanctuary event and um, the anniversary of that organization. One week after, that's the Paw Paw Festival which is legendary for Ohio. And then also I'm going to finally try to make my way to a place that you worked historically at the Lloyd library. And, um, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. I guess, uh, people can Google Lloyd library if you want to experience the awesomeness for yourself, but there's lots of coolness to be found there also in Ohio. And then, um, yeah, I think about just kind of these various different lineages and, Someone who comes up very strong for me in that regard is Dr. Jim Duke, mm. who is a teacher of Frank and a teacher of mine. I consider him kind of like my intellectual grandpa. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm hoping to do some teaching there in September at his green pharmacy garden about half an hour north of Washington, D.C. And so if people are ever in that area or happen to live in that area, you can uh, check that out. They have a lot of different classes, incredible botanical gardens. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's some of the 
main things on the radar. But like you said, there's always, always more happening, right? In this always. area in particular. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I think about what's coming up. I mean, we're starting to harvest our apples now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's definitely kind of getting close to squirrel season as far as like trying to squirrel away all right. the abundance, you know, before the cold comes. And, yeah. That's kind of, uh, I think hot sauce is really big on the radar mm-hmm. for me. So, like, uh, I was talking about with the hummus or various other things, I like to incorporate wild edible aspects into hot sauce, too, and a lot of different directions you could go there. And Yeah, always more directions you could go, always. especially when we get together yes. and start talking, it <laughs> seems like. Well, we'll definitely have to do at least a few more of these, but maybe it can be an ongoing thing. I would love that. That would be fun. Maybe one a season or something. Yeah, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, I just want to close by saying that, one, I'm so grateful for the work that you put out there into the world. You put a whole lot of your knowledge and yourself out into the world selflessly. And I'm always grateful for that and always grateful for how much I continue to learn from you. So thank you so much. Awesome. Well, the feeling is 100% mutual. Mm. So thank you so much as well. And I will look forward to many more adventures together, spirit willing. (laughs) Yes, definitely. All right. Well, thanks, y'all, for listening and happy foraging. Thanks for listening to Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. I love hearing from you, so please leave me your comments, along with liking and reviewing this podcast and sharing it with someone you can empower on their wild path. This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. If you like the stories, tips, and tricks you heard, and would like to hear more from wildcrafters and foragers around the world, please consider donating today to help with production costs. You can make a one-time donation or become a patron by visiting my website, thewanderschool.com, and going to the podcast page. On the website, you'll find a gold donate button along with classes, services, and products I offer at The Wander School, and my book, The Herbal Handbook for Homesteaders, Farmed and Foraged Herbal Remedies and Recipes. Thanks to Tina and her pony for the use of their beautiful song, Medicine. Until next time, I'm off to find new ways to empower you on your wild path. Follow along on the Wander School Instagram and Facebook pages. See you in the woods and wild places. Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. Here to tell you that medicine Don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground The medicine we need grows all around